Hey guys, Jack here. Uh, welcome to this week's episode. We have an awesome guest today, Eileen Sutton, the author of The Total Poker Manual, uh, which is a really unique poker book, and we'll discuss that a little bit in the interview. Only two announcements this week. One, the videos from last weekend's event with Thinking Poker are now all online on YouTube. The YouTube channel is RFID Poker, and we'll include a link to that channel in the show notes. Also, Just Hands now has a Snapchat. Our name is Just Hands Poker, and if you follow us, you can see uh, Zach and I as we travel across the country playing poker over the next couple of months. All right, hopefully we'll see you on Snapchat, and thank you guys for listening. Hello, Zach. Hello again, Jack. Good to be here with you again, recording another hand today, uh, and this time it's not just us. Uh, we have one of our first in-person, or actually that's not true, but... An in-person guest today, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, Zach, why don't you give her a proper introduction? Um, this woman is the author of the Toter. <laughs> it's Toter, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it is the author of the Total Poker Manual. Journalist, publisher, writer, Eileen Sutton. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I hope that was a satisfactory introduction. <laughs> We've been just totally bombing those lately. Uh, well, you keep you keep going like, okay, this is who we have. And Zach, you give a proper introduction. You keep putting me on the spot and I get nervous. What do you want? You, I mean, I've done that like five or six times in a row. So I, you know, I thought you'd be prepared by now. All right, Eileen, let's uh, hear you have a hand for us. I do. And you guys have had some really wonderful... You guys have had some really wonderful conversations on the show in talking about getting really getting deep into the weeds and ranges and some great technical analyses and all of that. I want to back into that part of the discussion, and I'm going to let you lead that. This hand for me, I played against a guy named Nick some months ago. I'm still thinking about the hand, Mm -hmm. but it has resonance for me on a lot of levels. It was... When I first started, I had a particular leak. This hand was proof to me that I had fixed the leak. So there was a lot that happened in the hand for me, uh, psychologically and emotionally, uh, and having more to do with sort of mental game issues, uh, as well as some of the technical stuff. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with um, the mind bending part of the hand, and then you guys can we can back into the other stuff. Um, this was. This was um, at a 5-5 game. Uh, the effective stack size was roughly $1,000. Uh, it was a full top table, so there were nine players. It's an, it was an underground game in New York. I had played hands with Nick about only six times, and he's a very accomplished player. He's been in the game for about 10 years. Um, he's got some very impressive tournament results, and he's got some, um, I'm sure, very impressive cash results, but nobody really can know and monitor what those are. He prides himself in being kind of self-taught. He doesn't trust coaching. He doesn't trust videos. Um, he he just, uh, he kind of is an on-the-job learner kind of poker guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very confident. Between hands, he can be very gregarious and very warm. Um, he has some of Phil Ivey's energy when he's playing, you know, he can be very quiet and he's very focused. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, 
something that I actually posted recently to my Twitter feed was that players tell us who they are all the time, and we ignore them. We ignore the information. So going into this hand, um, I had I know that Nick is absolutely capable of bluffing, right? right. He's 10 years yeah. in the game. He plays very high stakes. He's a professional? Is a, yes. Okay. He's, he's obviously he's an accomplished tournament player. Is he capable of bluffing? Yes. Have I ever seen him bluff against me? No. Has he ever not had it with big bets against me? No. Have I ever seen him bluff other players at this game? No. That was kind of the background, right? Sort of simple, the bluffing history. Um, another player had said to me that he was furious at him one night because he had, they had some history and he bluffed him out of a big pot. So that was just in my mind. I, I think it's important that, like, kind of clearly upon reflection, you know, there's the in the moment, okay, this is an accomplished player who's bluffing. Someone just told me about a big bluff he made versus the evidence of him actually bluffing in the games with you and against you, you know, because that's, there's always a big difference there in terms of like, you know, can they make big bluffs versus will they make big bluffs? And if anything, are they going to exploitably not make enough bluffs against you? Right. And I had seen him, I was actually, he was someone who, I mean, as a two seconds of backstory for me, right? So I've been playing underground in New York for two, two and a half years, maybe. And when I first started, you know, I was a woman in this guy world. Um, I had uh, issues around, you know, I, I was, I've written about this uh, in my poker uh, journalism, etc. and my blogging for Redship. Um, I was bullied as a kid. So when I first started playing poker and I would encounter male, especially male aggression, I would just go kind of crazy. So I made so many hero calls just to not mm. feel pushed around before I really had control of my game. And it was just, it cost me a fortune. So I still work on that because there's, and I think all of us deal with how we feel when we, we deal with aggression in the game. But for me in particular, I just felt like I had to save face over and over and over. I feel like the hardest, the single hardest thing that poker players do is fold. So I practice folding now. It's a, it's a big part of sort of how I'm at this, where I am in my game and how I, how I take care of that. So when I, and I was afraid of, there are certain players that when they, I'm in hands with them, I just feel afraid. I do. And uh, now I don't feel afraid of Nick. Now I, I, I had won some hands against him and just relaxed and just stopped giving him so much power. But I was really afraid of him and I was afraid of him in this moment. I have also seen him like be really play really tight against me. Like he has this kind of huge ego, you know, he's a lovely person and he doesn't want to lose to people that he perceives uh, are less than him in skill. He hates to lose and I kind of think he hates to lose to me. So, but I've seen him kind of fold and fold and fold and play really tight against me and also fold a ton of flops when folks were betting, you know, betting into him. So I was really surprised given his skill level, kind of how tight, I've never seen him be a maniac and I, maybe he has that in his vocabulary, but anyway, that's a little bit of the backstory. So yeah, I'll, I'll just weigh in. I think given how much history it sounds like you guys have and the fact that you've never, you've never seen him show up with a bluff at showdown is pretty significant. Given how often you should be bluffing, theoretically, when you see 10, 15, 20 times where, you know, there's one or zero bluffs, that's extremely significant. Also, I'll just point out that I think it's very possible to make money in poker without bluffing very much at all 
or without bluffing enough. The reason you bluff is because you can make even more money by bluffing. But I, I think saying that this guy has been in the game for 10 years and he's not bluffing that much, that's not necessarily super inconsistent for me. I, I think it's very possible that at a certain point in the game tree, he becomes very, very value-heavy, and he probably overfolds to aggression from other players. And I think against the vast majority of opponents, that is a very good strategy. So his experience, well, it would suggest that he's certainly mentally capable of bluffing. He might just not have that in his strategy very often for legitimate reasons. Right, and I have a limited, in all fairness, I love what you just said, and I love the notion of value-heavy. He has this kind of, it's weird, because his reputation so preceded him when I first started playing in in this game with him, and he just seemed like this super fierce, like, whatever, you know, big giant, like, you know, those big, like, you know, Japanese monsters or whatever, Godzilla (laughs) kind of figure. And he's folding and folding and folding, like, what the hell is this, right? I do have a small sample with him. So it's possible that he has a higher bluff ratio in his game. I simply haven't seen it. But I appreciate what you're saying, and I've I've very much experienced the value-heavy sort of part of his play. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and as Ed Miller says, you know, like, even if you're against a good professional, like, people in live poker all don't really bluff even close to enough. Uh So sometimes you're against, like, very good players, uh, or maybe not very good players, but, you know, very aggressive players and seemingly lose compared to the field, Mm -hmm. where you're going to have to choose some bluff catchers to call with. But against someone that doesn't bluff enough you can just not call with any of your bluff catchers and that's going to be the best strategy. So I don't, we haven't heard the hand yet, but just kind of going into the hand, that's what I have in mind. We've seen a ton of showdowns, no bluffs. Uh, and we know this about Nick. So I'm going to not plan on hero calling ever against this guy. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, um, in this hand, uh, Nick opened, um, he limped from early position. One player limped after him and I raised, to 55 from the cutoff with um, ace of spades, queen of spades. It folded around to Nick, who called. Um, the player after him folded. So we were heads up, and there was about there was $120 in the pot going into the flop. So Nick lived early position? He did. Okay. And is this your standard race size here? You're kind of like 4.5x? It's a 5-5 uh, game. Was there a straddle? Yeah, there was no straddle. I okay. this was yeah. As I my I don't really have I, I only thing standard about my opens are that they're much larger than everybody else. Yeah. So yeah, I'm generally um, you know if he had opened for fifteen and there had been one caller, I probably would have raised to somewhere uh, between uh, sixty and seventy five. So yeah. But to the two limps, so so yeah, you're making it like 10x here plus the limp. So is that are you doing that with kind of your whole range? And if so, is like your is your range stronger than maybe like an average late position opening range there because you're making it so large? I don't actually uh, at this point in my training. I um, am opening. Um, I'm opening at roughly 25% range, not differentiating by position. Okay. So I'm opening most of my range from every position. So um, I, I might, I Ed Miller was my second coach, and you know uh, Ed is great on the notion of not, um, not ever limping. 
I will occasionally limp. It breaks my heart to do so, but I will occasionally limp um, with a smallish pair or um, just depending on the dynamic and where I am and like that. But I'm generally opening um, most of my range. You know, I'll, I'm somebody, even though it's certainly, uh, you know, opening pocket fours from under the gun plus one is by the majority of player standards a negative EV um, proposition. But um, I'm confident in my post-flop play and like that. So that my goal in my very big opens pre-flop is to get heads up or three-way as much as possible, and especially at this game, because at this particular game, there's just a lot of loose monkey business. And But in general, um, I'm happy to make a larger investment. Um, I like to make it as difficult as possible for someone to get into a hand and for someone to proceed. Um, like... I want to want players to always feel like I have my hand on the back of their shirt and we're kind of running a race and I'm pulling them constantly behind me. So I want to make it very difficult for players to come into a hand. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm my, my continuation betting frequencies have now more to do with board textures and like that. But, um, but I'm really, I don't mess around preflop. Do you feel like a lot of the limpers will be calling the 10x opens with worse hands consistently? Yes, okay. <laughs> which makes it yeah. it's incredible to me. I mean, I had a game, I was at a 1-2 game a few weeks ago, and uh, literally it was like, um, you know, five limpers, and I think I opened to 50, or f- I think it was 40 or 50, it was some outrageous amount, and everyone called. And I just want to, I mean, I know you guys have seen this. It's like, mm-hmm. really? Like you're calling a $40 raise and you limped with $2. It's so, making me want to play the under-end game. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while for me, personally. <laughs> well, I think it's common in a lot of live poker settings. I, I don't really squeeze light at casinos or, you know, other games where there's a lot of limp calling anymore. I used to feel like, you know, I should be... Squeezing because these people, how, how could they possibly call? And they just do. They always. They, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I got a squeeze through. So I'm. If you're if you're playing with me and I'm squeezing, I'm not saying I have like a top ten percent hand, but I'm not light. Uh, so you can take advantage of that. Yeah, limp folding is not usually in most players' arsenals. Well, I mean, I make adjustments. I mean, if if, if there's no breaking point, right? I mean, if you have, if I have to go to seventy five dollars at a one two game, I mean, if there's that's an exaggeration. But if if there's no breaking point, then uh, you know some strategists that I respect they say then you go into you know your a limp is a limp behind is fine and later middle late position or something like that. I mean, if it's going to cost me a fortune and, and my, um, my SPR is just a mess. I mean, but generally I'm playing really, really deep. I just play, I'm, I'm just never, I was teasing, um, Brokas or I was teasing those guys. I was like, Oh, there's, I've heard of that like short stack strategy thing or whatever. <laughs> like I'm always just so deep. I buy in deep. I re, you know, I'm just con- I make sure that I have, a pond of chips in front of me at all times. So I, but yeah, I, I mean, I make those adjustments. If it's just, if it just becomes ridiculous and there's no, if it's not, if those big opens are not getting me heads up, then I'm not going to just piss all that money away hand over hand because it's just the pots get huge. And then, you know, there's, I have to make a very, some very serious decisions on the flop. And then it's just a whole different kind of stress. Well, I want to move on with the hand. I will just say that like, you should def- I think it's definitely worth considering opening a fair chunk more hands in later position. 
Whether that means you should be opening less in early position or more in later position is very much up to game dynamics. But I would just imagine that if you're seeing profit raising, you know, 20 to 25% of hands in early position, you will see profit with like the 25 to 45 percentile of hands, you know, raising the cutoff in the button, uh, particularly on the button. Or if you're on the cutoff and you have a weak button. Uh, okay, so so you So I raised it. to 55 with ace of spades, queen of spades, and um, Nick was the only one who called. So we went toward the flop, heads up, with $120 in the pot. The flop was um, queen, queen of clubs, six of hearts, seven of hearts. Nick checked. I bet... 70 I bet $70 into a $120 pot which which at the time looking back it was just too big of a bet and I'll tell you why I think that's true um and he called and so then there was $260 in the pot so well, I had okay. I had the queen mm-hmm. I I I have been I was first trained by Matt Matros as a tournament player and that half pot bet has been in my soul. It's just in a part of my brain. Um, Ed Miller is one of the few analysts who, in his writing, in his play in past years, will make full pot bets. Um, it's very rare, even in cash, where bets can be larger and it's a whole different dy- dynamic and you're not worried about going broke necessarily. But in general, I was trying to just... I try to establish at the beginning of the game my bet sizing, and I haven't yet in my in my own play, worked out a kind of... And I'm starting to do that, working out a theoretical structure for my bet sizing relative to the portions of my range that I'm engaged. But that said, sometimes I like to establish early in the game that I'm not that... Whereas most players are what's sort of normal for the table, all that tribal behavior is like a half-pot bet on the flop if you're going to see bet. Um, I want to just, if I'm thinking I'm going to get stacks in, and this is very classic Ed Miller, I want to start to move that money into the pot. So I want, if I feel like I'm possibly going to be stacking off and I'm thinking about later streets, I want to start getting that money in. On the other hand, I feel like, uh, you know, a $70 bet into a $120 pot. In effect, a lot of players, and I know you guys have seen this a million times, they will shut down, they want to shut down the draws, right? They want to, you know... Uh, or they'll overbet because they, God forbid, somebody should draw. Everybody's terrified of being drawn out on. But I do feel like the bet, I turned my hand face up a little bit, um, that I was kind of announcing the queen with my bet size in my in my thinking. Um, so, but that's that's what happened, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't think that the $70 necessarily announces the queen, and first off, I want to say, like, I think it's good that you're thinking about, you know, not always just doing the tribalistic half-pot C-bet. Um, that being said, I think this is a, a case where a 60 or $70 bet is best. I think there are cases where betting smaller is better, and there's betting there's specific hands where betting closer to the pot or an overbet might be better. But for a reason I'm about to get into, I think that's, like, a really good bet sizing with a specific hand for exploitative reasons. Uh, I think when you start to bet larger... You remove his incentive to call with like pocket pairs eights through jacks, which you know when I'm betting seventy dollars, I think that's a big value target for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you re- you remove some of his incentive to draw with certain hands, and then I also think you know seventy dollars is low enough where it's like 
okay, she clearly doesn't have to have it here or have a monster draw, so maybe I'll opt to turn my open ender into a check raise as opposed to just a check call. So I like 70 because it's like just, a, you know, just low enough that I think you're going to get some check raise bluffs, like he's not just going to check call with his draws. And then I also think you can get value from one fair hand. So I actually really like the bet, bet sizing in this scenario. Yeah, what I would say is I think there's two questions to ask here in terms of not being too transparent. One would be, are you announcing a queen here with this bet? I mean, and when I when I say that, what I mean is, if you had a hand like, you know, nine ten here, a hand like king jack of clubs uh, with you know a lot of backdoor draws, hands that you might want to see that bluff, are you going to choose this sizing? That's a good question. Well, so if the answer is yes, then your strategy is not announcing a queen. But there's a second part, which is that, you know, what is your opponent going to think? Mm -hmm. And if you have reason to believe that your opponent is always going to put you on a queen when you bet this size, then don't bet this size with a queen. Because even if he's making a fundamental mistake against your range, Mm -hmm. if he's going to play well against your exact holdings, we can exploit that. So uh, a smaller, larger bet size, if you think that's going to disguise your hand better, then I would advocate for that. And also, if you think he's if you think he's going to read this sizing as a queen, then I would bet this sizing with anything but a queen, yeah, basically. And especially all the air that I show up with here. Yeah. And obviously, then it's kind of a game of cat and mouse, where if he's like a professional player, he'll catch on to this eventually. But if you feel like right now you have such an exploitive read on this guy because he's used to playing like a set strategy that works against most players, well, exploit it to the max until he wises up, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I like those ideas. I also think it's very plausible that he doesn't see this bet of 70 as just a queen, uh, and that the bet of 70 is probably the best sizing to choose with your whole range, considering the board texture, which is not totally dry, but not particularly draw-heavy. Mm-hmm. We have two connecting cards and a flush draw, and one somewhat high card. Mm-hmm. I'm stating the obvious, but that is why I think this bet size is appropriate, absent of reads. All right. So this is where it gets weird. So the turn is the five of diamonds. Okay, yeah. We both have roughly eight or $900 behind. And Nick donks out and shoves his entire stack. Okay. Um, so <laughs> this is where, and just let me say parenthetically, uh, again, I, I don't I, I don't see him opening that many hands, and occasionally I'll see him like sit for a while and not play, and then he'll open kind of a weird hand from a weird position, like or maybe he gets bored or he's not getting cards or whatever, whatever. So I don't really see him get out of line that much. But that said, him kind of priding himself and not uh, sort of. I mean, having results, or maybe he studies in a way, or he's lying about it, or something like that. But the other, what I will see him, I've seen him do, like, I've seen him shove a turn when he knows that his opponent will, is just, uh, you know, loves draws and is a station. And I've seen him shove turns, and then he goes, and then the guy, like, the because the guy didn't improve on the turn and then the guy will fold and then Nick will go, yeah, I mean, I know, like, you're drawing. Like, to me, that is, 
unbelievably poor play to just shut down a hand almost um, mm -hmm. vindictively, yeah. right, for all the obvious reasons. So when he shoves here, I mean, I felt like he was representing 8-9, um, obviously. Um, certainly an 8-9 is a hand that he would have limped with from early position, especially off suit. Um, and I thought about it for a long time. You know, I had a pair of queens. Um, again, everything sort of that feeling in me, like I have to keep Nick honest. You know, he can't get away with this. But it didn't make uh, sense to me um, if he made if he made if he made the straight. Why is he pushing me out of the hand? Right? Like he has so much more. If he's going to bring me along with the queen. You know, why not even check that turn or see what I'm going to do? Maybe even, yeah, just sort of take, if he believes that I'm, I have that queen or whatever, um, he has this vindictive thing where he, maybe he was putting me on the draw and wanted to just shut it down. It was such a bizarre thing to do. But what, but for me, the victory, I ended up folding to the bet. Um, I kept asking myself and thinking about kind of what he was trying to do there and what it meant for him and what he got from it. When we folded out, he muttered something. I don't ever believe this is what Tommy Angelo calls the Sixth Street, the, the, the chatter on Sixth Street. He said, and he said to one of the other players, Nick goes, yeah, that's how you play Ace King. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm like, who the hell knows? You know, like, I... Maybe. I, I could tell you for sure he probably didn't have Ace-King. Or, no, no. or, 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 or if he does, he's definitely not the winning... Like, th th there's a lot of things in this hand. Like, uh, first off, I want to just go back to like what we were talking about before we even heard the hand history. This is a player that you've seen play a very value-oriented game mm -hmm. and not really show down with any bluffs. So I think not only do I feel like comfortable snap-folding the queen on the turn, I feel comfortable folding... like basically any hand that's worse than what his value range is here. Especially because we're not getting good odds, you know? Like, e even if we did have a few bluff catchers, like, I don't I don't think we would have ace-queen as one of them. To this hand specifically, though, what what is kind of the worst hand he's shoving for value here? Because I, I would imagine when someone makes a giant overbet shove like this, they're really just representing 8-9. Uh, but I might be wrong. Maybe he also has some sets in his range, or... yeah. No, that, I, I was running through everything that I was running through the sets. I was running through the, you know, the possible straights. You know, maybe it just, it just, it was, yeah. And let's go back to his pre-prop range a little bit. So you were saying that, like, he definitely has the 8-9 offsuits in his range yes. in his position. Yes, So to me, that's not really congruent with him being, like, a winning professional player because that's just a really terrible play. Uh, especially in like a loose game like this. Yeah, like I said, sometimes he'll just show up with somewhat weird hands in somewhat weird positions, especially if he hasn't played a hand for a little while. So, so in this yeah. spot, he hasn't played a hand in a while. Um, I actually don't remember that, but yeah. I've seen him just you know he'll play nine nine ten off, or he'll play a hand like jack nine off suit from a weird position when he hasn't been in a hand for a while. And that, that's important. I I would imagine that if if you don't remember exactly the, like the game dynamics, we probably can't give him all combinations of eight nine, mm -hmm. but. Uh, yeah, the fact that he could have, you know, all the 8-9 suited and some 8-9 offsuits, that's significant. He could also probably then have 7-6 suited, like, you know, 5-6 suited he might play this way. It, it's hard for me instinctually to put, like, a 7-6 offsuit in, in this player's range, just given the description you gave, but also, like, if he knows how to get value when he has a good hand and routinely overbets like this and gets called, well then, 
you know, he could have massive prefop leaks like that and still be a, a very winning player. So, I don't know what uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I think given the description, uh, we should be pretty nitty here. I would only call with the very top of my range or hands bluff catchers that have a chance to improve. So any, like, queen x of hearts, any sets, and your straights, I think you're going to be defending enough of your range that, one, I mean, if he if he is value-heavy, then you'll be fine. And if he is bluffing a lot here, you'll be fine, too. So I think it's fine to be very nitty and just call with your best hands uh, or your hands that can improve when you're not. I don't know, when I hear this, like, giant overbet, I mean, I'm just... I just really feel like it's like 8-9 the vast majority of the time, and I would, I don't know if I would call like a queen X of hearts or a set, you know? But if he has the, if he really has the 8-9, then why not just keep me, why not, why not he's, get... He's, he can get value. So for, for example, I, I always, when I play live poker, I, for anyone that's listening that's played with me, I frequently have like a very crazy image, and I often employ, uh, you know, the overbet for value. Um... I also employ the overbet as a bluff against better thinking players, but for almost anyone that's not a professional, when I'm like overbetting 1.5x, 2x, 3x pot, I just have it every single time. Mm-hmm. And the reason I get called is because someone will say something like, well, why would you use like that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I will just say like, this is like a 4x overbet, and it just seems like a horrible way to get value. And I'm not saying that this player... Maybe this player just always has 8-9 here, and he's just choosing a really horrible way to get value. But I guess I'm just not confident enough mm-hmm. that this is never a really, or never a bluff or sort of a stupid hand. Uh, just given everything we know about this player, to fold my very, very best bluff catchers. Like, I think the player who shoves 8-9 here is not necessarily, you know, not going to shove fives here. Are not going to show five six here. Yeah, I really. don't know. I mean, it, it's I mean, it's it's for me. It's all coming back to what Eileen said at the beginning of the podcast, which is that you know he hasn't shown up with bluffs. He's always had it in these big spots. Mm-hmm. But what what is it? And uh, you know that would take a long discussion in terms of going over a lot of hand histories. But I would imagine that like it when you're betting half pot on the river is very different than when you're shoving forks pot on the turn. You know, like this is really kind of like a nuts or air situation. It is in theory, for sure. I think in practice is what I'm arguing. Well, in practice you're saying it's an always nuts. And I just... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just not ready to take the leap of faith (laughs) that, you know, whenever this guy turns the nuts, he's just shoving 4x pot with only the nuts. It's just so bad from a player who we've said has been playing poker professionally for 10 years that I'm not ready to fold. Okay. Um... We're not going to lose that much in the long run if he is only taking this line with this hand because he's not going to have the nuts very often. And even when we call, we're going to have, uh, you know, or around 20% equity with any of those hands. Yeah. Which is not great. We're losing money on this call. But it's just not going to happen often enough that I think we need to worry about it. And I, I'd rather maybe be less exploitable uh, because I don't think it's that likely that he only has the nuts here, rather than just give him credit for the nuts always and only call with the nuts. 
I, I just think we're going to have a profitable call with our best bluff catchers, is my hunch. Just as one, just as a small correction, he has not played professionally for 10 years, but he's been in the game for at least 10 years. So he's now a, he's now, he's now a professional player, but he's not been playing professionally for 10 years. And, you know, um, I'm not convinced that, for example, I don't know if Berkey talked to you when he was on the show about the hand against Bill Perkins, which is now, you know, all over the Twitter mm-hmm. sphere, when he over, when he overbet the turn knowing exactly where pretty close to where bill was and getting provoking bill to put his whole stack in which he did because berkey had the set of eights on the flop and bill had king x and and oh like, that that was dan bolzerian right no it was berkey and bill perkins okay there was also a hand where there were dan bolzerian was putting heads up on bill perkins twitch stream mm-hmm. and dan had uh Oh, he didn't have a king. Yeah, this was a different hand. Sorry. Yeah. Right. No, but so that was in that case, Berkey is shoving, you know, he's very thoughtful about, I mean, he's a brilliant player. So he's shoving, you know, he's putting in a large overbet on the turn for very particular reasons. I'm not convinced. Someone said to me a long time ago when I was first learning to play, when, if you can kind of decide to the best of your ability in response to every bet that's made again, that every bet that your opponent makes, do they want you to call or do they want you to fold? And you don't, most of the time you don't know, but sometimes you know. And again, just it's, it's an abstract read, but I felt like I, first of all, I didn't feel like Nick was shoving here um, according to a very, um, some very careful line work and blah, blah, blah. I didn't feel like that was true. And I also didn't feel like he wanted to call and I can't really tell you how I felt that, but um yeah, I agree with you. It's it's not a good way uh, to get value. And um, for myself, um, again, the victory for me in terms of my old leaks, you know, was not feeling like I had to keep him honest, not falling in love with a pair of queens uh, with an excellent kicker. It wasn't enough. Uh, you know, there were so many hands I wasn't feeding. And also... Um, yeah, I, I just psychologically, I just said, you know, uh, yeah, it, I just didn't want to go there. I just didn't, it was, that was a leak I was working on. And it was like, yeah, but even what you guys are saying, it didn't even make sense. The call didn't even make sense. And, and to the notion of bluff catching and all that kind of, you know, as I said uh, before we began, I'm studying Berkey's play and studying Christian Soda's play really carefully. And I really respect what they're doing and how they're, you know, taking the game in a somewhat different direction. Um, and this whole notion of um, guessing and having this is something I'm thinking about for myself and um, I'm going to be working on with one of my coaches that I, I, I want to kind of start to deconstruct this idea of uh, kind of bluff catching and guessing and analyzing and, you know, uh, being in a sense out of control in a moment in a hand like um, as a player, I want to create more situations. I'm not. I'm not convinced mathematically that if we can give ourselves like a thousand hand sample, you know, or a five thousand hand sample where we decided to hero call or we decided to bluff catch, I'm not convinced over time that that's ever where most of our profit comes from. So these kinds of hands, separate from this whole dynamic, separate from the hand history, the history they have with Nick, the relative weakness of my holdings, all of that in general in my poker life. Um, Unless I'm always, I I know that this is an exploitive thing if someone decides that they can bet into me and I'm always going to fold, but which will never be the case. But I'm starting to just 
deconstruct what it means to kind of make a hero call or, you know, hold on to a bluff catcher or that whole super dramatic side of poker that sort of informs those big TV moments. And I'm just looking at it more carefully and looking at it on a lot of levels and what does that all mean? And in this case, I was not in control of the hand when he shoved. So, um, and at that point you shove and the hand's over. There's no more decisions to be made. So on so many levels, it felt unattractive. Yeah, and I mean, everyone gets a chance to bet. So I don't think it's necessarily possible to take control of a hand unless someone submits to that control. Like you might have done everything in this hand that you could to take control, per se. Uh, but if this player decides, well, now I'm going to shove the turn, there's nothing, you can't do anything about that. Uh, you can only respond to it. And so I guess just the level I'm sort of thinking on here is you and I share this sort of feeling that this is not a value bet because it's a really dumb value bet. And maybe Chris is right. This is a value bet. I Most people will call me. Chris? Is it Chris or Nick? Oh, no. it's Nick. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Nick. That's okay. <laughs> maybe Nick... This is, maybe this is a great strategy by Nick. Just shove the nuts here, and it, it works. But it strikes me as a bad strategy. It seems to strike you as a bad strategy. It feels like he wants a fold. And I think he's given us such an extreme price that we can go with that read but hedge our bet, basically, by choosing to bluff catch with the hands that can, can improve. I think... Your read might even be strong enough to call with a hand like ace-queen, but he basically said, you don't have to call me with ace-queen of spades to beat me uh, if I'm bluffing here. You can just call with the hands that can improve, and you're still going to crush me if I'm bluffing too much here. What I did do in another hand with him in another game, I uh, I, I now... Uh, not I'm sorry, not in that... Yeah, in another game. like I use against Nick, again, very... Uh, I, I edited... Ed's ninth book, so Ed Miller's ninth book, so okay. it's really in my head. And his whole approach is really in my head, and his he's I adore him. But um, this is one percent. Uh, this is the course. Of I edited the course, okay. yeah. Okay. So, um, and actually, from playing the player, what just the most simple and beautiful advice about playing lags and starving them. Miller's you know approach about starving lags for information. Now, I don't really consider Nick a lag, but I now do starve him for information because he puts me on. He just I know he thinks I'm really super nitty and I'm only you know I'm playing you know a very like maybe a fifteen percent range and I don't let him just think all. I don't I don't care. I just let him think it. Um, but now I sort of play him as a lag and I starve him for information. And I will also often just check streets and get to a river with him and put in a bet, and he has no idea where he is. So um, uh, I've surprised him a couple of times, and that's a strategy that I use with him now instead of because he he kind of brings an energy as sort of like he wants to be crushing, and so I just surrender to that energy a little bit and then kind of bring up the rear and, you know, get some value out of him on the river because he, if I just, I'm checking and checking, he just... He's just going to assume I'm going to bet every card that I hit on, on various streets and whatever. So that's been interesting to sort of play around with that a little bit. And how long do you feel like you've been doing that, like where Nick thinks you've been playing nitty and you haven't been? Um, A few, I guess when I first met him, 
uh, I had just started to integrate uh, um, Berkey's 25%. I wasn't, I hadn't officially done it yet, so I wasn't a super tight player, but everybody thinks women are just, you know, nits. I mean, I've had games with Nick at the table where, you know, I had one game where I was just Vanessa Selps for hours. I was just, no, I was a maniac. I was a maniac. I was, that was one of the most, the best games I've ever played. And uh, so, but people just assume, I just get credit over and over and over again based on gender. I mean, I've played with guys for, you know, over a year that, you know, I bluffed someone, I bluffed one of the best and most maniacal players I know off pocket queens. I mean, there was no reason. For, it was, he was just, but he, no, it was on the, it was on the turn. And, uh, he just, he was like, what, you know, he just, I don't, he just folded. He told the queens to me and he's like, he showed me, I go, I go, he goes, what do you, I just, a total bluff on my part. He just goes, he kind of shook his head. He was so embarrassed. So women get credit. So even if I sit with Nick, you know, and I'm playing and, you know, aggressively and raising and whatever, whatever, a lot of times men just don't, I say this with love, but, you know, it's just, they just believe a certain thing about women at the table. So it's fine. It's in, I work it, I work it to my benefit because yeah. I get away with so many bluffs now. I just really, I'll constantly, I, I raised a guy recently, you know, he bet the flop and, uh, you know, I raised him and he was like... Well, I guess she has to have something, and he folded. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really great that you're, one, just aware to the degree to which that happens, and kind of continuing to push the edge in terms of, okay, well, they think I always have it, now I'm going to open up my range even more, and even more, basically, in, until, you know, you kind of reach some type of point where they're like, okay, she's making way too much money off us now, like, maybe we have to start calling a little bit. I'd be curious to, to see what that feels like, <laughs> even when I'm like, you know, running over the table and like only showing down very good hands that make good hands post flop. I still probably don't reach even a similar degree to you in terms of like respect and thinking that I have it. But I imagine it must be a lot of fun to play when you always get credit and then you could just bluff a lot. <laughs> yeah, we're living in the opposite world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually, surprisingly enough, it's like it's it's this weird. I have to. I will some. I sometimes show the bluff. I will show a bluff occasionally just because I want to get... I mean, I sometimes... I often do get paid off, but I want to make sure I get paid off. So sometimes early in a game, I will show a bluff just because mm. uh, my ego rises that I don't... You know, people think I'm like a nitty girl. There's a part of my brain that gets very rebellious to that perception, and it just really antagonizes me and makes me very defensive. Yeah, and psychologically, I, I can't, you know, imagine what it feels like exactly, but I can understand where you're coming from. <laughs> uh, but... I would imagine it's probably to your strategic advantage really not to sh ever show any bluffs mm -hmm. just because, you know, you're going to make more bad hands than you will good hands yeah, yeah. and you want to get people to fold, you know? Yeah. But yeah. if people, I mean, I do show a bluff occasionally just because I want folks to know. I want I want there to be, you know, the theoretical kind of value of bluffing and to balance your value bets and to, for people never to be confused. Like when you see Ivy play or you see, you know, any number of great players play and you're never, even someone like Dwan, like, you know, you're never, you have no idea. You just have, you have, you have to just go like this. Like, it's just like Ivy on a lot of hands, Dwan on a lot of hands. You're just, even Vanessa on a lot of hands. Um, that's my goal. And even um, the grinder, Ms. Mizrahi, mm -hmm. Michael Mizrahi, like he says his goal is to have a wide enough, crazy enough range that you just never have any idea. 
And to that, to that, for me, there's an intersection there. If you can get to a place where your range is so wide and your play is so unpredictable, and then you can mer- ma- marry that to an, a style that keeps you in control enough, in enough of hands, not every single one, obviously, then I think that's a very, that's a very powerful place to be. But. Yeah, no, I mean, that sounds, that sounds like a really, like, the, the, only, the only thing that I think when I hear, like, you know, I want to make sure my opponent never knows where I'm at and keeping my range sufficiently wide is that a good opponent, or even just like a decent opponent, will just be like, okay, I don't know exactly where they're at, but I'm just going to call them my bluff catchers because they're too wide, you know? And I imagine it's a lot of players that would be successful. But obviously there's, you know, players like, you know, I think Matt Berkey's a perfect example of someone who's, you know, repeatedly said in like the interviews he's done and in media appearances he's been in that, uh, you know, he plays a negative EV strategy pre-flop, but in the games he plays and he's able to make up for it post-flop by just taking like maximum exploitative lines against the players that he knows. And that's like really great when you could be so confident in your post-flop line work and in your reads on the players you're playing against that you can do that. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's in an interesting situation playing in essentially private games that you need you need to do something to keep your seat. And so I think there's some element of being perceived as an action player and maybe being an action player pre-flop and not being an action player post-flop and that sort of becoming a strategy where what you give up to the good players pre-flop, you make enough by being in the game and being able to play post-flop with the bad players that it's worth that sacrifice. I'm not sure if he would see it like that or he definitely might disagree with me. And obviously if he does disagree with me, he's right. But that's just how I, I see it. No, I mean, I think, you know, this this was a unique episode in that, like, we didn't just talk about, you know, the hand, as you, like, mentioned kind of in the, the preamble for the hand. Like, this is so much more about, like, the metagame and the game dynamics of, like, how to, you know, how to play with a player like Nick. Yeah, and also I I've, I love metagame. I love thinking about it and in enacting it and in leveraging and exploiting it. And I love, and I know you guys have experienced this a million times, you know, you're sitting with a player for many hours and they have some huge downturn and, you know, you're just going to like, you're going to destroy them. You know, you're going to, they're, you're going to do all kinds of crazy stuff on the flop and they're just going to feel too sad and too broke to do anything about it. You know, they're just not going to respond. Uh you know, those kind of moments where you're just, you know, you're kind of paying attention. I mean, there's all there's a million ways that people communicate their desperation. And I'm fascinated. I just, like, gather up, I kind of vacuum up that data. You know, uh, women have superior peripheral vision to men. So um, I can kind of look here and see, look to my left and see three players and their behaviors, and how they're touching their chips, and how they're constantly, if they're counting their chips, if they're straightening their chips, if they're, um, if they're behind and they're stacking, men tend to stack their chips, what I call the phallic towers, so they, they tend to stack their <laughs> chips vertically, like men who are not happy about losing, they, they tend to do all these power dynamic in their chip stacks, which is giving me a lot of information about how they're feeling about their game up to that point. Um, how do you stack your chips? You know, normally, <laughs> I mean, just like, yeah, just like, uh, yeah, like stacks of hundreds so people can see precisely what I have. You know, I don't, I don't fully... Did what... you ever put a hundred on top of the, like, or is it always just like kind of horizontal? Uh, I mean, I was kind of, uh, you know, Negreanu said something fascinating. He said when he first started playing and he was playing in casinos and he would spend a week 
um, mimicking players uh, just to try to get into their souls. Like, he would bet the way they did. He would stack his chips the way they did. He would have every physical gesture that he could mimic, he would do that, just to sort of feel their being, which is a weird, fascinating thing. But so I started to just, like, this is as close as I got to, like, a masculine sort of gesture. Like, Nick would stack his chips sort of, you know, and guys do this. Like, so so it's like five stacks, four stacks, yeah. three stacks, right? So it's sort of, it's an aggressive sort of the chips sort of coming toward you. And then this one guy does, like, a wall out this way, so, you know, I mean, one night I had a huge night, so I was just like kind of trying to manage all of it. That was interesting, but I've never done, a lot of my friends, they stack vertically, and a lot of tournament players stack vertically. Um, so, uh, but the men just, they just love it. So all that kind of game flow and all that sort of meta stuff and um, uh, uh, is as important to me, or even often more important to me than any you know range analysis and math and all that kind of stuff and um really having i was in a very interesting you know and reads physical tells like i was in a very interesting hand with the god one night i had aces and it was the flop with king xx and then the turn was a king and um but there was a huge amount of pre-flop betting and he you know I put him on a pretty big hand and the top of his range and then on the second king you know i checked to him and he just for like a split second he had this like a twitch in his eye, he kind of went like like a, a look of confusion. It was literally half a second, and I said, "Oh, he he doesn't have the king," you know. He he was confused by my check on the turn for whatever reason, and then he 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 barreled all three streets. I called him down with aces, and I won. And you know, but that that physical tell, or sometimes people is you know they just they'll bet and their hands are not steady or they're trying to be forceful or they're over forceful or there's a way that they're cutting out chips or they take too long. There's all those timing tells, all that stuff you guys I'm sure pay attention to as well. So, um, but the metagame stuff and just how people are feeling and, you know, Stu Unger was somebody who regrettably or not really loved to, you know, love to make his opponents feel really, really sad. <laughs> really, he liked to induce a lot of pain, but you know, it's a sick game. So mm, yeah, it is. And I was going to mention earlier, in terms of widening your range, I think what we sort of just mentioned in, when I think of guys like Phil Ivey in particular, I think I think a lot of that widening is not based on mathematical exploits as much as just a confidence that, and I think a lot of it is physical reads, a confidence that you're going to be able to navigate the hand correctly and want to give yourself some opportunities to do that. And also understanding that your opponents aren't going to take advantage of that. Where I think, you know, a lot of the widening that happens that we're talking about is very much against the math. And not necessarily taking advantage of the math, um, more so just an acknowledgement of superior skill. And I think, to a certain degree, hubris, but that's a different conversation. I totally agree. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen Ivy in hands like with Mattis Sauer, with David Benjamin, and he just has a read on, he, to me, I call, to me, Ivy is like the consummate predator, that he's just able to, like, he knows, like, Mattis Sauer folded like a set of kings to Ivy one night or something, you know, Benjamin in a hand with him kept saying over and over, because the board had paired, and so he was like, there's no way you can be, have a bluff here, there's no way, you know, Ivy had like the trashiest hand you could possibly imagine in that hand. And then it was a pure bluff, and Benjamin kept saying, there's no way you can have a bluff. This board does not allow for a single bluff. And he folded. 
So he, the predation and the exploitation, you know, having nothing to do with the math. And, you know, I agree with you about, yeah, post-hand, post-flop, post navigation skills, which I think, you know, Berkey and Ivy and a lot of great players, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see all that. Yeah, I, also, I don't think it's just phys- physical reads. I'm sure, Jack, you know, in mind, you had also, like, timing tells and, yes. like, bet-sizing tells as well. But, like, Phil Goffin once said something about Ivy when he played Ivy for, like, a ton of money heads up, you know, kind of in the, I think, around, like, 2007, 2008. Um, and this was all online. And what he said was that, you know, he would find, like, very small leaks in Ivy's heads-up game. Like, just from, you know, understanding kind of math and ranges probably better than Ivy. And Galfond would exploit those. And then he said, like, within a very short amount of time. Like, not enough where, like, Ivy got a proper sample and realized his leak, but just kind of, like, intuitively. Like, once he realized what Phil Phil was doing, like, you know, those leaks were plugged or, like, Uh you know, yeah. Or obviously, we're talking about, you know, one of the best players. Not the best player ever, but... I yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for sure, live the best player ever. Like, it is amazing. I mean, you can, unless there's someone sort of who no one knows about who could be the best player ever, and I, I'm not doubting that possibility. But in terms of the people you see play on TV, uh, which I think is a pretty good sample of the best players around, he those guys make a lot of decisions that I understand, and I I say okay, that. That makes a lot of sense. It might not. Sometimes it's what I would have done. Sometimes it's not, and I can normally think, okay, I understand why this person did that. With Phil, anytime there's a close decision where it's like a bluff catching spot where I probably would have just called, or really any sort of marginal decision, he always makes the right decision. Yeah, <laughs> and it's pretty unbelievable. And it, sometimes it's not marginal, or it might actually be very marginal in terms of the actual equities of the hands, but it doesn't seem like. <laughs> a reasonable play, but it's right. So just just having watched him play a good amount, I, I'm willing to call him the best, at least in the live setting. I haven't watched him play very much online, so I can't comment on that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, like, in you know, we obviously talk about uh, physical reads and timing tells on the podcast, but most of what we talk about is, you know, like range analysis and bet sizing tells. But I, I just want to make clear to everyone that, like, Physical tells, especially when you're good at it and you've played with players for a while, can be very, very important and, you know, maybe sometimes even rival the importance of, like, understanding, you know, what your preflop range should be in a given spot and what to do on a post-flop street. Uh, and there's a lot of guys who I played with uh, when I was first kind of coming up playing in, like, the New York Underground games that, you know, weren't particularly good players preflop, weren't amazing players post-flop, and had some serious leaks in their game, but in, like, big pots, they just always, almost made the right decisions, you know, Hmm. they made good folds when they had to, and they made, they pulled big bluffs when they knew they had to, and like, you know, when you're playing in a deep stack crazy game, even if you have a ton of other leaks, that's enough to be a profitable player. Yeah, I mean, and someone like Ed Miller, you know, he, he told me a wonderful story once, I mean, he doesn't, he'll often, he will often just put the mouth aside. Um, he's much more interested in his fold equity. He's much more interested in, in just being able to take, uh, you know, a, a bad turn card or exploit somebody, you know, in position, somebody checking to him. Um, he was playing against a guy for hours once who was just a math addict. So Ed would just give him the wrong odds over and over and over again. This was in a Vegas casino, and the guy would just fold over and over and over again. I mean, that was like... 
the simplest kind of exploitation of somebody who just was living and dying by the math. And I think kind of an extreme case. So Ed would just, Ed knew it. Because the guy kept saying it. He was like, oh, I don't have the right odds to call fold. You know, I don't have the right odds. You know, it's kind of stupid to even admit any of that. But, you know, tourists and amateurs in Vegas, mm-hmm. they're going to just sort of give you their whole strategy. And I, I just want to interject quickly to just, we've been throwing out the math, the term the math, yeah. with a lot of different meanings throughout our conversation. And I think we're all pretty much on the same page. But I think it's worth pointing out that I'll just define the math in a couple ways we've used it. In this most recent example, the math would be very literally like calculating your odds with the draw. And so, you know, Ed was taking advantage of the fact that maybe this guy wasn't considering his implied odds or, you know, the possibility of calling now to bluff later. Uh, And so that would be one segment of math. I think we've also talked about the math in terms of maybe more the theory is a substitute for talking about the theory, when that's more of a comprehensive math where we suspect that there is some way to play uh, where you can't be beaten. Uh, No one has found that, of course, but there's that math where you're trying to adhere to those principles. Um, But then I think there's always math. Everything we've talked about can be justified mathematically. It's just... There's the math that is the theory, and there's the math that is, here is on paper why you're making a mistake, and why I'm taking advantage of that mistake. Yeah, so if the guy who like played by the math, like the Taurus in Vegas, or whatever that you're talking about, that gave with the Ed example, he could also use the math in a way where it's like, okay, this person's frequencies are way off, so now I'm going to call with hands that don't have the odds to like become a set, but that I think are ahead of their range. So like the math is always present. So like when we say disregard the math, it's like, you know, you know, we're always thinking about range regardless of what. It's just that these things that aren't mathematically like in origin are informing our range. So like come like physical tells will inform how we adjust our range and like the odds we're getting with our hands against our opponent's ranges. So it always comes back to the math, even if, like, the origin of how we determine their range isn't like, oh, they open from early position, so they must be opening X percent of hands. Right. Now, I love both of your... I love both of those. That's... that's Yeah, I'm sure that's extremely helpful for a lot of your listeners. I mean, frequency, to me, is just... is is also just a beautiful and fascinating thing. Like, I play with a guy who just C-bats 100% of the time. He doesn't open that many hands, but he C-bats... A hundred percent of the time, and I'm like, really? I like really? No, I mean it's so. Or he'll he got in this habit where he was just raising uh, everyone's riverbed, kind of blindly as some weird tick. He got into his play. He's just raising riverbeds over and over and over again. And then we're calling him. He's like, wow, you have a really good read. I'm like. Dude, you know what do you mean? I'm like, thank yeah. you for the compliment, but in this case, you're just doing something ridiculous, you know. So, um, just raising riverbeds, like, just somehow got it. I mean, he's a decent player. I mean, he's often, I mean, he's sort of nitty. I don't know. He's he's often profitable. He just he kind of runs really well. He has this knit style, and he just runs so well. Um, that sounds really profitable. To me. Yeah, no, yeah. it's crazy. No, I can't. I refuse to be like the knit ball. I refuse to. I mean, I. I I don't want to say that in any kind of insulting way. I just, for me, poker is... Um, you could insult the nipples. No, okay. I don't. I don't want to insult. Like, people want to play a tighter style. God bless them. For myself, I, I just, especially playing live, we don't have, we don't, or not, in, uh, we, there's a, you know, there's, 
there's how many hands can I play? I don't get to play that many hands in a session, so I don't I don't want to sit there. I for me, I don't want to sit there. I feel more of a target in some sense if I'm sitting and waiting for cards. Or if um, yeah, another huge stupid tell is people are like, oh, you know, and they're like sighing and throwing and mucking, yeah. and they're not. Why don't you just put it on your? Why don't you just put a big sign on your forehead like I'm only playing premium hands? Like the minute that happens, the minute you say, "Oh my god, I can't believe how card dead I am," you're just telling the whole table what your range is. I don't know about that. I definitely play against a lot of players that will sigh and still play a really wide range. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll be like, oh man, I didn't get 8-5 suited, I just got, you know... (laughs) And a lot of players don't really understand, like, sample size, so they'll, like, they'll sit down and they'll play an orbit and a half, and they'll only get, like, one playable hand, Mm -hmm. and then after, like, six bad hands in a row, they'll, like, sigh... Even though that's like it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah after two hours, but it's hours, been forty-five. But it's been forty-five minutes. You know, like I came here to play. I didn't come here to fold. Yeah. <laughs> so usually after a sigh, I'll see anyone, regardless of. I mean, unless they're like really in it, they're gonna probably open up their range even more. It's like I know I wouldn't normally like open limp nine six shoot from under the gun, but I haven't gotten a hand since the cutoff. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it can be frustrating. I get. I don't think I get impatient with my play, but. I think I understand, like, when I don't play a hand for an hour, I know what that means. Like, I know roughly the, like, likelihood of that happening. And so I I can resent that, you know, the probability of that happening uh, and that I had to experience that at this particular moment. But, yeah, I mean, I I, I was just laughing at what you were saying because... There's so many. There's so many people who just start angry folding at some point. <laughs> like twenty minutes in, thirty yeah. minutes in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, angry fold. That's a great phrase. Angry folding. Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Uh, I remember my first uh, poker teacher in New York. Uh, uh, she. I remember actually. I just remember talking to you guys. Like her advice to us. She said, "You need to play every third hand." And I just, I just now remembered that that was her recommendation. This was a coach? She was, no, she, I mean, she's somebody who, she teaches women how to play um, to kind of help their business lives and sort of using the principles of poker and stuff. So to help them in their business lives and stuff, it's a thing. So, um, but anyway, um, so she told us, um, she told us to play every third hand. I just forgot that. And I think I'm going to try that in my next session. <laughs> I'm just going to play every third hand and see yeah. what that feels like, you know? Let's edit this out. Yeah, we, we played with her, I think, at Aaron Brown's house. Huh. No, 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 no. The woman that run the... Oh, no, is this... I don't, I don't believe that. What's her name? Um, Wendy? This woman's name was not Wendy. Yeah, no, she... She does like cor- games for corporate people. Not there's a number. Of, there's a number of folks in New York who do. Yeah. yeah. Oh. No, See, I always thought there was like one person or something because then one of our good friends, like his dad, was dating someone who also did a similar thing. Like I just I didn't realize how much like corporate like poker it's, services are in New York. It's the new golf. I was I when I did the chat with Andrew and yeah. and Nate. It's the new golf for women. Like poker is now. First of all, poker is the new golf for men in corporate America in New York, and now women want to participate. So um, I learned by accident in a corporate networking thing. That was where I learned oh, in, wow. in Midtown Manhattan. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. And uh, 
Yeah, it was. That's amazing. Yeah. No, it was, and I just showed up. I mean, I was never a card player. My family, there's cards all over my family. My grandfather died at a poker table. I mean, all over my family. It was never my life. But I learned wow. there that day, and uh, um, I was, I was like, just enraged and like already like so agitated. And so I'd been playing poker for, you know, three minutes or something, and I was like so, I was so engaged in the competitive sort of feel of it with these women. We're all just you know corporate gals sort of showing up and having some wine and having lunch and playing a little poker mm -hmm. and stuff like that but i was already like furious yeah <laughs> like reactive i was tilting all the time you know, i just started to play <laughs> so what does your like poker education look like since that moment when you first started because you've talked about a yeah, lot we've of heard a lot about it yeah, yeah. different yeah. coaches that you've had yeah like, just in a nutshell yeah. yeah i went from that experience i learned how to play from the woman who taught us there and then um i was just playing super casually in new york just in home games like low stakes tournaments home games like um i wasn't yeah poker even though but i said but from the beginning I somehow knew that this was something real for me. It was never going to be casual. Like even from the very, very beginning, I was I was very judgmental of people's cards, and I was just you know I was really a bitch. Uh, but I just took the game really seriously, and I and then uh, I just kept playing and playing, you know, just playing, and it just was sort of taking. It's kind of coming into sort of taking up more and more space in my life, and then completely by accident through my writing life. I'm a fiction writer. Um, I met Matt Matros, who's also a writer, and then he became. I asked him if he would coach me, and at that point, I was playing New York free poker. I mean, I had no. It, it was such a fetus. I was so unformed, and he was. He said yes, and I was a very, very serious student. And then Matt really, I mean, just so grounded me um, in the game, the fundamentals, math fundamentals, and I was really just serious. I mean, I was, and then it just started getting realer and realer, and I thought. Then at that point, I knew it was just going to be my life. And then um, I met Ed Miller by accident and uh, started working with him on the book uh, over time. I met him, and then six months later, he hired me to work on the book, and then he became my second coach. And then I found my cat. And also very early in my relationship with Matt, I knew that, um, I mean, Matt with three bracelets certainly modeled a successful tournament player's life, but I knew I would not tournament life was not mine and I can't even explain to you how I knew this I was streaming a lot of high stakes cash on late night late at night all the videos everything on YouTube and I was like the, you know these are my people like setting money on fire kind of thing like I knew that that was my world and then I met Ed and I he was coaching me and then I found underground games in New York and um and then I kind of never looked back so um and then I wrote the book, and you know I started. I got involved with Redship, and I've been blogging for Redship for for uh, almost a year. And uh, I'm writing a memoir about my poker life, which is you know I have an agent for, and we're trying to get that sold. And um, so uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating kind of journey. Uh, I uh, Salon.com picked up one of my essays recently. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, um, just you know. Uh, a woman reached out uh, to a friend of mine recently who's a writer and she's writing a piece on women in the industry and some of the challenges for women in a very man's very male game and stuff like that so it's you know I've had there are women I talk to all the, I talk to women all the time across the country that have had various experiences playing and especially live there's percentages percentage wise women so many so many fewer women play live than online yeah so uh, I think there's a comfort factor there and women, I have had, you know, a handful of very weird, hard moments in New York where I cried or whatever, but um, I'm not shy and, you know, I'm not, 
I'm a pretty aggressive person on every level, so um, I get a lot of respect, a lot of respect, but, you know, some creepy stuff has happened, and, you know, women continue to sort of struggle for visibility in the game, so it's an ongoing, and I love helping, I love helping women in the game, I just, um, I just really do, I'll just, in any way I can, helping women play, learn, get comfortable psychologically, whatever, if people... Uh, anyone listening, any woman, any man too, but certainly any woman listening can reach out to me anytime. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, just happy to help. Uh, I have my first uh, student in uh, Seattle, uh, as a woman who's 70, and she's going to Las Vegas this year. So, awesome. um, yeah, yeah, no, it's been an amazing guy. Coaching has just been so beautiful. I've, I, I really love it. It's been fantastic. So. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So the Total Poker Manual is sitting uh, over on my shelf, uh, right shelf. on top of my poker chips, <laughs> right I next to it, my yeah. champagne. Uh, I could tell the listeners about it, but I think it would probably be better to hear about it from the author. Oh, that's so sweet. I appreciate that. I I, I feel like I, you write, you'll see if you, yeah, writing books is like having a kid. You sort of have the kid and then you go on with your day or whatever, you don't really, but yeah, I keep forgetting. No, I keep forgetting I have this book in the world. But um, um, the Total Poker Manual is um, a very unique, um, illust- full-color full illustrated guide to four games. Uh, most of the book is about Texas Hold'em, and it's really immersive uh, in the sense that um, our goal with the book was to, to bring players um uh, who knew absolutely nothing about the game all the way up to maybe the beginning of, say, an intermediate player and to give them an experience of not just the technical aspects of the game but the culture of the game and um, the kind of spirit of the game and all the places and ways and you can play um, and you don't have to read it start to finish. You can you know, jump around in it because it's organized according to a series of tips. And then the very last section uh, is... Um, more advanced strategy, and I worked very hard to not only give women at every level of play in the industry a lot of visibility in this book, but particularly um, I wanted to give the experts and the analysts and the pros that I respect and have taught me and helped me give them some visibility in the book. Uh, So a lot of expert spreads and um, folks from all walks of life kind of weighing in on the various, you know, I see poker as kind of like an octopus, and it has all of these beautiful arms that are always kind of flailing simultaneously. So I don't think there's any one way to learn this game and any one way to play it. And I wanted to create a text where, you know, players from a lot of different levels could find themselves and and kind of find an entry point to a very complicated game um, and also make it just very... Uh, visually stunning and uh, exciting because I think we don't really talk about I think Tommy Angelo talks about the emotional parts of poker and it's very rare that any any of us ever do mm-hmm. in any context but the book I think kind of brings forth the, the kind of beautiful intensity of the game that we all kind of silently experience and yearn for yeah it's probably the only poker book in the world that it's enjoyable to flip to a random page and read what's there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> partially because of the format, it's segmented into how, probably 300 or two or 300 sections. Tips, yeah. Uh, a couple, one to two on a page. Uh, and also every page, like we just alluded to, is 
really colorful. <laughs> yeah, a lot of pictures. It's like uh, organized a little bit differently in each thing. It's definitely like an exciting book to kind of just, yeah, flip around. Or if you're, you know, getting new to poker, to read in one sitting or a few sittings. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I just want to highlight those parts of the book because the information, there's definitely some information that's really unique in this book. I think particularly about the culture. But this, I mean, there's lots of ways to get poker strategy. Uh, but this is sort of a unique piece of the poker literature. Uh, this would make, you know, let's say you're a poker player and no one in your family or your spouse doesn't understand poker. This is a nice little book to give them just because, you know, at their own leisure they can read certain pages uh, as opposed to being like, okay, this is like how to play poker. Here's poker applications strategy. of No Limit Hold'em. Yeah, don't, don't give them applications of No Limit Hold'em. No, I, I love that, and it's really right. Like, in poker, as in all things, I guess, I, all I can talk about authoritatively is poker and, and writing, but learn the rules and break them. You know, I have yeah. a hand suggested hand selection chart in this book that I didn't want to write. I didn't want to put that out there as, you know, I just didn't. It's such a creative how we play, what we play at what position relative to a million other considerations at every moment of a game is so personal and so subjective that I didn't want to do it, but it's kind of necessary for this kind of text. But that said, I would say, you know, uh, I had, I'm reading uh, a novel now by um, a genius who's actually, yeah, this guy's a genius, and he did something in a, in the second movement of the book that's just, you know, a million writers would kind of never do in terms of craft and the visual layout and what he, just how he managed a whole movement of the book. And to me, that was somebody who understood the craft so carefully and then could just shatter every rule to do what he did. What's the mm -hmm. book? Who's, who's the writer? It's called What Belongs to You, and the author is Garth Greenwell. Okay. And, um, and also in poker, like, for me, with my wild opens, you know, uh, you know, it's just something, it's most books are going to be like, you know, 3x, 4x, tribal, custom, here's what everybody's doing, all of that stuff. And I just encourage people to, you know, not to jump into something wildly, not to jump into some behavior or some uh, tactic or some uh, habit wildly. But, you know, I'm comfortable now opening wildly in a lot of moments because I spent, you know, hundreds or thousands of hours opening conservatively and opening, you know, in a more tribal kind of acceptable thing and now I push out but I do it with confidence because of my own training so um, books are you know Ch Christian Ch Soto has this famous thing of like he has a one of his RC one of his red chip blogs is like burn your books um, I, I don't it's there's it's books are great and it's it's not they're not everything. They're great. It's not that they're not everything. It's just there's a balance, you know, it's just to how, how you, like, I can study and study and study. I've had periods where I had an imbalance and I was studying too much and I wasn't playing enough. And then I go to a cable, table and my brain would stop. I was overwhelmed with data. Yeah. I was frozen, mentally frozen. Mm. So um, that balance of study and RCP and Redship has actually put out some very interesting stuff about balancing study and play. But, uh, and I think it was Patrick and, it was either Gus Hansen or Patrick Antonius, I think it was Patrick Antonius who said that for his first four years of, of his poker life, he didn't read a single text and he just wanted to kind of feel the game and just sort of absorb the rhythm of the game and the dynamic of the game. And 
you know, it's it's the beautiful democratic soul of poker just allows us all to find our way, you know, very, a very, you know, uh, individually, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Well, before you burn your books, make sure you get <laughs> the Total Poker Manual. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... So we're we're both musicians, and one of my absolute favorite musicians is Herbie Hancock, who talks about if you were to teach a child how to play the piano, a good way to start would maybe be to just let uh, let that child just play for fun without any instruction for you know six months or a year or so, which is you know very uncommon I think among most people who start out playing the piano, including Herbie. I think there's something to be said about that for poker as well. Uh, I think it's going to be hard to gain an edge on the field without having some sort of individuality or creativity. Unfortunately, unlike learning the piano, <laughs> playing poker without knowing anything can be a very expensive habit. So I, I do think for some people, maybe some people who aren't as confident in their intuition or people who are interested in the game but don't want to put themselves at financial risk uh, or as much financial risk without having more of a background, a more studied approach before upping the volume can make a lot of sense. But I think for a lot of people, they would be surprised uh, at how much more they would get out of playing than studying. That's not everyone, and I think there's definitely a point for everyone where you need to be studying and that never really goes away. But, yeah, I think playing definitely gets overlooked in this situation. I, I think it's important to not to like be playing with purpose, though, and playing in a way that's very much like studying. So for most like new students uh, of mine, I usually recommend like a 2-to-1 ratio of studying to playing. So studying 8 hours for every 4 hours of play, which is a lot of studying. But then for other students that may be a little more advanced, I recommend playing but with like frequent breaks and reflection. So you play for 30 minutes at a time, 45 minutes at a time, 60 minutes at a time. You work up your folding muscles. You work up your mental game discipline. You work up all these really important skills of being a great poker player that don't necessarily involve studying with a book, but just about like an awareness and presence at the table. And there's a difference between just saying, like, okay, I'm going to play more and get better versus doing active exercises and sometimes meditations to, you know, to master the, the life skills. I always recommend my students just go on like 16 hour benders and <laughs> start out, you know, nice and lubricated. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Obviously. Uh, no, I think that's a great approach. Tommy, I wish I had done that. Yeah. No, Tommy has that nice analysis. Like he, he got me into like 60 to 90 minute. He says like your cash play is a series of connected units. Exactly. Like I, you have a yeah, 60 minute unit or Tommy Angelo in, the elements of poker and so now I do I play I set my device and I I'm disciplined I get up after 90 minutes um and I I leave the table I now take um a novel with me Tommy talks about giving yourself a few minutes to allow your a total mental break from the play so I try to leave the room or whatever um but I those having units and not just because you know you can sit down at a cash game and like you're not going to you, you won't even stand up. I mean, I cannot stand up for like four and a half hours or something like that. I just am so engrossed. I would say Tommy's book and also Jared Tendler, 
um, on the on the mental game. I mean, Jared just uh, I think he's absolutely brilliant, and he he helped me has helped me so much when I have leaks and I just go back. I've gone back over and over to his text. Um, he has a couple of volumes in the world, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I first started playing, there's this goofy guy who would be like, "Oh, did you learn that in a book?" You know, this kind of sus- this kind of suspicion of knowledge. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. weird because he sucked and he wanted to just disgrace anybody else who was beating him. So it became like the shaming thing he would say over and over. You know, wouldn't be the first time in history people were afraid of knowledge. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So, I'm curious, we've heard a lot about the role poker plays in your life. What else do you have going on? I know you're a writer, and you haven't just done, you know, work in the poker world. What does the corporate Eileen look like? Um, The corporate Eileen is trying to disappear herself, frankly. (laughs) Uh, I've been a corporate writer in financial, and a marketer in financial services for 18 years, and which has uh, allowed me to have a a life as a fiction writer. Um, So, I'm trying... Um, very hard to transition uh, out of my po- out of my corporate life and make that go away, so I can just be writing and playing poker, uh, which is my preferred uh, structure of my days. And on the on the on the fiction side, I did my graduate work late. You know, I did my I went to graduate school for I got my MFA when I was fifty, and and went to NYU. So it was it was wonderful. You know, um, everything. Uh, in my life has just been later, but uh, I worked with, you know, had a world-class mentor at NYU there, and uh, changed, that was life-altering. So um, my fiction life uh, continues to roll forward, and um, I feel, you know, I joke about poker being my retirement plan, but it, it is, and uh, hopefully. So uh, I feel very, very blessed. I, I don't use that word that often, but I feel the game found me um, you know, very late in life, and I often kind of feel amazed that I can sort of sit down with very young people, and, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, yeah, I have kind of a weird life, in a good way, so, um, so yeah, so the, the, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to just have, uh, uh, my long-term goals in, in poker, you know, I would like to, um, be playing, you know, very high-stakes, within five years, uh, and I would love to, my goal is, my long, longer-term goal is to play all over the world, um, so that's what I'm dreaming about, and uh, um, I think it's, um, yeah, I lost my train of thought, but, um, but oh, I know, I know at least two pros who were, they, three actually, who very deliberately committed themselves to never playing high stakes and never, um, depleting their wealth and have stayed one who's very, very successful online, who stayed at that 510. He likes his strategy there. He wins money there. He doesn't feel like moving up. Uh, that's very interesting to me, you know, just how people's strategies for making money in the game long term and um, the whole high-stakes world is not um, desirable to everyone, and for some reason it's very desirable to me. So I'll see how far I get Yeah, I think, you know, you're talking to two people where it's similarly desirable. Uh, (laughs) You know, when I was first, Jack and I both played poker uh, way before the age of 18 online. But when I personally kind of got re-into poker after taking a break, I know that break didn't really happen for you, Jack. uh, That a lot of the inspiration to really get back into 
to poker and play kind of live poker for the first time. Came at her age, around age 1920, watching high stakes poker in Jack's dorm room. So yeah. playing in a game like that is definitely, for a lot of reasons, I it's like a it's a goal in terms of that would be awesome. It's not a goal that I feel like will likely make financial sense, you know, because to have all of your own action in that game, that would require an incredibly high bankroll, which most people playing those games probably don't have or are getting staked. Uh, but yeah, like I, I already, you know, playing like 510 PLO already would require a significantly higher bankroll than I have now. So the uh, idea of playing 500 PLO is just like, you need to have a lot of money to do that. So it's, I have the goal, but I also, I'm, because I've been playing professional now for a few years, like I'm intimately aware of like what it takes to get there and don't want to like bank on that just because of the variance of five and six figures that will necessarily come, which, you know, is going to be psychologically very difficult. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm in a little denial about all of it, but I'm not there yet, so I'm not worried about the denial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in the dreaming portion. Well... When you've got your place in Macau, well, let us know about subletting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or I heard I heard Manila is the place now, but really? yeah, I mean that's where yeah. Jungle Man and all these people post about on Twitter, playing and losing millions of dollars. It sounds good too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Manila is like one of the densest cities in the world. Huh. Uh like 40,000 people per square mile or square kilometer maybe but, I mean there's a big difference between those two but I don't know which one it is anyways Eileen thank you so much for joining us we we were talking for a little while before this even started you know we don't want to abuse Eileen's time or at least maybe we'll continue the conversation on our own uh, but at least not make her feel like she has to stay longer than she wants to so Eileen thank you so much for joining us Thank you both. It's been really wonderful to talk to you and share ideas. Yeah, thank you. And remember, the Total Poker Manual. And Eileen, is, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes, but is there? you have a blog, right, for people to check out? Uh, I have a website. Um, it's SuttonStories.com, okay. uh, S-U-T-T-O-N Stories.com, and if folks want to reach out, um, they, they can email me through the site, and I'm very responsive.